Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, beautiful souls, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible author and sex therapist, Tara Galliano. Hello, Tara. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. Our topic for today is on rediscovering your body. And for those that don't know, author Tara Galliano is a certified sex therapist who has worked with women and couples for over two decades. Tara offers unique couples retreats and ceremonial sensual journeys that open doors to new experiences and communication with oneself and partners. She's here to talk about her book, Rediscovering My Body a guidebook for women who have lost their way to inner wisdom and want a way back to listening, knowing, and loving their bodies, themselves, and their lives. How are you today, Tara? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. I want to ask, how's your body today? Ah, (laughs) my body feels good. I, I am not in my office, as I mentioned earlier, and so I really am in a relaxed and reposed place. (laughs) Wonderful. It's funny because I ask that question a lot. Uh, You might know I teach yoga. So a lot of times before class, I'll ask students how their bodies are, what's tight, what's weak, what we might want to work on today, what we might want to avoid. And something that's always somewhat surprising to me is how little people, first of all, know about their bodies. Like basic information, like what muscle moves the arm or helps you to breathe or how the muscles work or how bones work, let alone being in touch with this body and consciously inhabiting it rather than just seeing it as like something separate, like a tool. So I'm curious just to hear about your experience on how well people know about and are in touch with their own bodies. Yeah, I love that. Because yeah, seeing the body as a tool really reinforces this mechanistic view that we have of our bodies, which is also what I see is how people view sex. They see it as a mechanistic process, so a linear process. And so, yeah, it's it's an interesting perspective that I think many of us live in. And then there's opportunity to discover more awareness, which is I guess my my journey of rediscovering my body is having more awareness of the felt sense of being in my body and what that actually means to me and how I understand that and how I value that as opposed to not being in my body, which for a long time, I don't know, I think I wasn't quite as embodied as I am today. So I do agree with you that we do, I feel like in the West, have a fairly mechanical view of the world. I feel like Newtonian mechanics has permeated our consciousness. We see the world through cause and effect, through the lens of scientific reductionism. And I'm curious, what do you feel we should view the world as or the body as? Or what's perhaps a more life and happiness serving view that doesn't see the world as a mechanical machine? Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm not about shoulds. I feel like, well, we all have our own view of and (laughs) 
Right, really. And and to recognize that there's a default way that we see things. And often that default is just infused into our worldview and we don't even know that it exists. And so I would say the opportunity is to step back and to cultivate some awareness that there is an overlay, maybe the Newtonian view, um, which is also coupled with the Cartesian view, or so I think, therefore I am. And all of that obscures our ability to actually understand and be in our body. And I'd say the invitation is to, to trust and to not to dismiss the feelings or the sensations in the body, the interoceptions, the, that felt presence, because I think we all have it, even when we experience it as a sense of numbness, that that is a sense that we feel. And that oftentimes it is just kind of a, a burgeoning existence or perception. And it may not be one that we're really familiar with, but I want to encourage people to feel into that. I think that's really a valuable way of knowing and being in the world. I love that. An invitation to trust, not to dismiss the feelings or sensations in the body. I do feel like it's something that's very important to encourage because I feel like the general person isn't aware of their body until there's a problem, yes. right? Until their back hurts <laughs> or like you stub your toe on the coffee table or something. <laughs> and then because you only become aware of the body when it's a problem, then it's easy to view the body as a problem. True thing, yeah. <laughs> so I was going to ask, what's the first thing people should know about their bodies? But I have to rephrase that now. So I'll say, what's something extremely helpful that, <laughs> that people might want to know about their bodies? No, I love that. Good reframe. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that there's inherent wisdom in the body and that when we are coming from a paradigm where if something's broken, we need to fix it and we're looking for the pain within, then that's one way to proceed. And then an alternative actually could be looking for the pleasure and then reinforcing that positive experience and then seeking that more in the body. So really beginning to recognize what feels good, what allows you to feel more alive and that that's a powerful pathway forward as well. What are some examples of things that help people feel more alive in their bodies? So I was saying yoga, because I think that's a really powerful practice. And then I also think one that is accessible to most people is just the opportunity to slow down. I, I, I have studied trauma-releasing exercises with Dr. Berselli, and what he would say is just slowing down your gait, where instead of taking five steps in a minute, or maybe you take more, but to really slow it down where you're feeling the foot lift off the ground and feeling how your foot then lands on the ground, what part of your foot is engaged first, and then where does the foot go in between the steps. So really slowing things down so you're noticing. And I think that's a powerful practice of, of just slowing down because I think that really allows us to be more in our body. Because a powerful thing about the body is the body's only ever in the present moment. And I work a lot a lot with people who are struggling with mood disorders like anxiety and depression. And anxiety brings us into the future and depression is about the past. And the body is only ever in the present moment. And so the opportunity is to be in the body, to come back to the senses. 
It's so interesting to hear you say that because I'd love to just hear more because I have heard that quote and I feel like it's attributed to the Buddha or who knows, like, because I was like, would a therapist agree with that statement? The anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) I am a therapist. (laughs) So you would say that the old adage that uh, anxiety is because we're stuck in the future and depression is because we're stuck in the past. There is some, some... scientific fact to that. Yes. And I say that to my clients regularly. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you brought up trauma a little bit and it just brings to mind how earlier you mentioned trusting in the feelings and sensations that are in our bodies. And I feel like for a lot of people, even the idea sounds overwhelming or like if you feel like your heart beating really fast, like you're having a panic attack, the last thing that you want to do is be present with that emotion. And what do you say for those that do feel like being present in this moment might be too overwhelming? I'd say, yeah, it's a scary thing to be in the body. And and there's no denying that. I'd say for a lot of us that we have the experience of discomfort and pain and tension when we actually attend to our bodies. And the opportunity is to really be with that because if we suppress it, it's only a short-term gain. And then in the long term, it's going to cause us more negative consequences. So the opportunity is to learn how to tolerate that distress for a little bit longer in the present moment. And then eventually my experience and what I'd say is most people's experience that I work with is that that distress tolerance then changes and they're actually beginning to able or be able to experience different sensations beyond the distress, beyond the tension, beyond the contraction, beyond the pain and the suffering. But they begin to experience maybe some relief or some neutrality or calmness or peace or bliss or ecstasy. Thinking about how some of the answers that you've given so far, and I'm curious if you could explain a possible conflict somebody might experience. So for example, when you mentioned thinking about what makes the body come alive, you're like, walk very slowly. <laughs> and Because I feel like somebody might think it's the exact opposite. It's like, oh, if I want to feel alive, I need to go to a roller coaster. I need to jump out of an airplane. <laughs> I need, you know, to be at like some concert with all sorts of extrasensory stimulation in order to like actually feel present in uh, my experience. Would you say that both are like perfectly valid uh, ways to feel alive? Or is there some greater merit to this really basic idea of, of, of slowing down and getting in touch with the, the smaller, subtler aspects of our experience? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I really do. And yes, I think they're both valid. Because I think the way that our society is currently constructed, that we have this amplification or this need or desire inherent that's built into us how to experience overwhelm. It's like we don't want to just taste something pleasurable. We want to taste it to the umpteenth degree. So it's like this exponential amplification that we desire. So we really want more, more intensity, more frequency, longer duration. And, And that's one way of being in the world. So we're seeking that thrill. And then there's the other way, right? That we can choose to notice the nuances and the smaller, more, I would say, easily overlooked items in our life, like a flower or being with a tree. And and again, that neither is right nor wrong, but the opportunity to build capacity to be with both and 
enjoy both. And when we have to default to the one that's really grossly over-exaggerated, then there's a refinement of our senses that has not been cultivated. And so the opportunities to really build more capacity. So I love your advice on yoga and meditation and walking meditation and even just eating mindfully is a wonderful way to slow down. And I'm curious if you have some, you know, sexier (laughs) 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 practice, or perhaps I'll say more sensual practices that do help us discover that erotic, pleasurable energy. Ah, yeah, that's a great question too. I like that. So the opportunity with sexual pleasure is to tap into, I would say, breath, sound, and movement. So if you're already engaged in engaged in essential activity or a pleasurable activity, how is your breath, right? Are you breathing deeply? Are you breathing shallowly? Is the breath in the front of your body? Is it in the back of the body? Just to begin to notice that. And can you have some sound with that? Because sound is really going to move the energy throughout your body in a much bigger way than the movement. So really, I mean, if you can think of undulations, right, coming up the spine, because the shishimna, right, is in the spine. That's why we, or one of the reasons why people do yoga, there's part of the reasons why it was introduced is to bring the energy up the shishimna and to activate that aliveness. And because sex is a vital force, it actually moves more with sound and breath and, and movement. And the fourth element is, of course, presence. Like how present can you be with those other elements? So breath, sound, movement, and almost the all-encompassing one that is presence that does all three. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what your work as a therapist and a sex-certified therapist or a sex therapist looks like. Because let's just imagine there's some skepticism around what could talking with one hour with a person do for me because sex feels like this very embodied thing. And it's like, if you know, you're not in the room, how could you possibly know what's really going on in somebody's <laughs> sex life? <laughs> I love that. That's a, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Because that's true. Like how could I possibly know? And yet pretty much this is all that I've done for my adult life is <laughs> talk about sex and sexuality. So I I know a little bit of something. Yeah, I don't contend to know it all, but I know something of something. And what I can say is that there's a lot of different things that are going on. There's a huge overlay of shame that lives within most people's body in this Western world in which we inhabit. And I would say that that's a big piece that blocks this energy of vitality that sexuality is within our being. And so when we have the opportunity to release that, that can actually bring a lot more pleasure to the sexual experience. And one way that we know that releases shame is to begin to identify it and articulate it, right? Because it's not a secret any longer. It's something that we can talk about. And coming back to these elements of breath, sound, and movement, sound, right? The vocalization, the word is really powerful. When you say the word is really powerful, what do you mean? Making noises during it or uh-huh. like <laughs> mantra? Yeah, what are you yeah mantra, about? all of that. Sex therapy is a talk therapy. So to actually find words to speak about your experience is a powerful process. Because if you think about it, like language is an architecture. It's it, we With the words, we're formulating concepts and understanding. 
to our experiences. And then we're actually able to convey that and communicate that. So like a common language with a lover, some way to communicate or identify our desires or our pleasures is a powerful process. And I would say by and large, most of the people that I work with don't have that ability. And if they do, it could be probably medicalized. So they're speaking about their body in an objective scientific way, and they're not speaking about themselves in a pleasurable way. And so I would say most people that I see don't have fluency in speaking about themselves, their body, their body parts, their genitalia, their pleasure, how to have pleasure with another. We're really misinformed and ill-informed. Totally agree. I do think getting somebody to just ask for what they want in the relationship is often a huge obstacle. Where do you find the shame comes from? Well, I mean, uh, religion, (laughs) family of origins, (laughs) uh, this Western society in which we live, patriarchy. I mean, just this white supremacy. I I feel like there's all these systems at play that impact us that we are aware of, or some of them that we're not even aware of, and that we live within. And I believe that they they oppress all of us on some level and inhibit our own innocence and natural expression, of which sex is one of those many forms of expression uh, that I believe is innocent and natural, and that is obstructed by the systems in which we live. So if you were like queen of the world, <laughs> like... <laughs> Dictator, let's just say, <laughs> or even you know, you rub the you rub a lamp and you have three wishes. What um, what are some changes that you feel like are so necessary in society um, to break out of this shame and to be more in touch with our bodies and be able to talk about them in a more pleasurable, serving way? I love that. That's good. Yeah, I would always tell my kids, I'm a benevolent dictator. <laughs> <laughs> So what I would wish for the world, really, and when I think about my own children and my grandchildren, I think about this desire for them to really not know violence in the world. I mean, I feel like there's a whole bunch of violence that we perpetrate against ourselves and against others. And I remember when my daughter was 11 that she asked me what rape was. And I thought, wow, how does that come into a person's consciousness? And how do I then bear the burden of sharing that? And I just feel like, what a poignant, memorable, awful conversation to have to have. And so my wish is that that would never be the case, that we could have more liberation in terms of our own sovereignty and sexual expression. And I I do wish that for all people. And that there has, uh, that there's an opportunity for more comprehensive sexual education for each of us that's focused more on pleasure than on the pain, coming back to that experience of the pain in the body and how then that informs how we speak about the body. But if we were focused more on pleasure and that being sexual with another and having pleasure within our own bodies is a positive experience, but that's a powerful reframe. So instead of abstinence-only education or education focused on prophylactics and prevention of STIs, that we then can speak about pleasure and what it is to be in ecstasy, and what is it to be in ecstasy with another, and what is that experience? I feel like the more normalization of those conversations, that it's not the sex conversation that our parents have with us, (laughs) but it's many conversations about sex and sexuality, that there's some, you know, fluency and comfort speaking about these issues. That's truly what I would like to see in the world as as queen of the world. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know. I would love to see it too. Just pleasure-based sex education, age-appropriate sex education from a young age. And it is heartbreaking how far we seem from that in today's political discourse. But we can hope and we can dream and we can continue this work. And I heard from you earlier the problem of shame and the overlay of shame that we have as a big obstacle towards fully pleasurable sex life. And I'm curious if there are other obstacles that you've seen or identified um, that also prevent true connection and and intimacy. Yeah, yeah. So as I think about that, I think about this mechanistic worldview. And oftentimes what I see is that people come into my office, particularly heterosexual couples with a linear progression of sex indelibly imprinted in their mind. And so it's the stimulation, it's the ejaculation, and then that's kind of really it. So it's not a very long progression, but that's the way they're envisioning sex. And it's not imaginative, it's not playful, it's not creative. And so when they feel then that that is the only way to be sexual, it really limits their capacity to be more expressive. And then when they can't have an erection, or if they can't orgasm in the way that they always had in the past, it becomes very restrictive. And my sense is that there's tremendous amount of pleasure in the body and that women have, you know, the ability to have, well, all people do have the ability to have psychedelic orgasms. Like we have endogenous DMT within our body, that there's this amazing vastness within our being that we can access at any time. And it's just really the opportunity to step out of the current paradigm or the linear paradigm and step into something different where we're experiencing sex and sexuality with more curiosity, playfulness, and and creativity. And that's really what I see. I love that. Having our sex life be creative, playful, and imaginative. And it is interesting because even when you mentioned people have a linear view and almost a rigid view of, of what sex is supposed to look like, I was thinking about the role that porn does play in our sex lives, particularly because if we don't have any sort of sex education, pleasure-based education, we're going to look other places for it. And for a lot of people, some internet website is the only exposure they have. And then they, they begin to think that that's what sex is supposed to look like. So I am curious, even with like social media and the rise of internet porn, what are some of the biggest trends that you've seen that get in the way? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think pornography is it has infiltrated the way that we think about sex because even if you're not participating and viewing it yourself, your partner may have or somebody who talked to you about sex may have, and that it just, I would say, seeps into the way that we think about sex. And of course, pornography is entertainment and it's not education. And so with the lack of education, it just kind of takes over. And that's fine. It's not like pornography is bad, but when it is the only view, there's so many other views that are missing from that perspective. And so there's a lot of things that I find. There's a website, what is it called? Uh, Your brain on pornography, how it actually begins to rewire the brain, the neural pathways of how we experience pleasure. And then the opportunity is to create neuroplasticity within the brain and cultivate more erogenous zones or more ways of experiencing pleasure that are different from that limited view. And I really think a lot, yeah, a lot of sexuality, a lot of actually going to therapy too, is about creating more choice. One of my mentors said that about going to therapy, and I absolutely agree. It's like it creates more choice. And that's what I think is really important 
is that we begin to understand that we have choice about our own sexual well-being, our own sexual sovereignty, our own pleasure, and that pornography is just one view of, of the many different options that are out there. Yeah, I love your emphasis that it is entertainment, not education. Right? That's one view. People are like, you're not going to learn to drive from the Fast and Furious series. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. <laughs> so our topic for today is rediscovering our bodies. And I feel like we've already covered it a little bit towards the beginning, but let's just really get down into it. What does it mean to rediscover our body? So I believe that we have an inherent knowing, that we have an innate knowing, an innate wisdom within our body. And that when we're born into this world, I would say there is some understanding of it. We may not be able to articulate it as such, but we know it and we live it. We are that. And then there is this forgetting oftentimes that is education as we know it, right? <laughs> or or being mm-hmm. in our families of origin or just the acculturation that we experience. And then the opportunity to remember our agency, to come back to ourselves, to be adults is really to rediscover this process of being in our body, that it is not just a, a, a pain body, right? But it is actually a pleasure body and that we can have so much more, not only pleasure, but wisdom perception. I mean, what the body can know in a moment is so much more vast than what the brain can, I I would say, metabolize in in a moment. That uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, is is really showing the research about trauma in the body, but also about the wisdom of the body, that there is so much opportunity for health and healing in our miraculous body. And we just are just tapping into it. And then I think a lot of us don't trust our bodies. We don't learn how to trust our bodies and that there's a a lot of opportunity there. There is so much unlearning, I feel like, that needs to be done. Even for me, I'm surprised that like most of our entire education system is sit in this chair and knowledge will be dispensed to you. (laughs) Never once, you know, when I was growing up, did somebody say, okay, Let's listen to our breath and see what yeah. it, it has to teach us. And what are some signs that we are not in touch with our bodies? Yeah, yeah. I, I love this idea that the education is dispensed to us because I do feel like that is what happens. And it, it takes away our natural agency and sense of knowing. And it, it then begins to grow this lie that we have to seek outside of ourselves for the wisdom that we desire. And then, so then how will people know? I I mean, sometimes we don't know. I mean, I guess we can go through a whole lifetime and never know what we don't know. What I encourage people to do is that if they're feeling dissatisfied or they're feeling like they're in a rut or they're feeling discontent, that the opportunity is to reach for something different and then begin to explore, not outside, but maybe, but maybe begin to explore internally what may be true for them. I think that there's a powerful process of examination that can happen when we focus more introspectively. And that's not necessarily endorsed in this culture. I think that, yeah, the fast and the furious and looking outside of ourselves and, you know, the over-exaggerated experiences, all of those are titillating and activating and flirting with our attention. And that 
we have the opportunity to own our own attention and focus in on maybe ourselves a little bit more, not in a narcissistic, indulgent way, but really maybe with some more scrutiny and discernment and some better understanding. You know, earlier you mentioned some people have a very rigid, linear view of what sex is supposed to look like. And then even in our discussion on porn, I feel like there's not even just an unrealistic idea of what sex is supposed to look like, but really kind of sky high expectations that we should be able to be sexual acrobats <laughs> in the bedroom. And maybe you read some book on Tantra and it's like, yes, you can have a three hour long extended cosmic orgasm that releases the endogenous DMT in your brain. And, uh, and you're like, oh, wow, I just, I just like five minutes before I go to bed. Is there something wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, what is just a healthy, realistic sex life look like? Uh, I love that too. Yeah. I mean, I'd say it's important to love what it is that you do, right? If that five minutes before you go to bed is good, then that's good. Uh, and that I, and I used to say, and maybe I said this, but in the beginning of my career, I used to say heterosexual couples would have penile vaginal intercourse for seven to nine minutes. And it was recently updated that it's like five to seven minutes now. So it's like the the truncation of the sexual interaction has has really happened, right? And so things are becoming more limited. And is there anything wrong with that? No. <laughs> and are, you, are you satisfied with that? Yes. Yay. That's good. And if you want something different, right, then the opportunity is also there, right? If you want this three-hour pleasurable tantric psychedelic orgasm, you can reach for that too, because that absolutely is possible. So again, it's not that either is right nor wrong, but it's just different. And what is it that you desire in your life today? And I would say for a lot of people, they can, I say at the beginning of their sexual journey, that it was more of this heightened experience, maybe more of not knowing. And so maybe things are happening quickly. Sometimes maybe people weren't, things weren't happening quickly. Maybe they could make out with their partner for hours on end. And so it's both, it was really quick and it was really long and, and all encompassing. And that the opportunity as we get older is to still be able to tap into that timelessness, to that experience of really dropping in and to surrendering into the sensations and also choosing for things to be kind of one and done and like, okay, that was great too. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like so far our emphasis has been on our own healing and growth, rediscovering our own bodies, which of course is super important. And I'm also wondering what makes a person a good partner, a good lover? What are some skills that we might want to think about cultivating in order to please our partner better? I'm even thinking of Dan Savage's good giving and game advice. <laughs> and curious what you know you find is helpful for people to be better lovers. Oh, goodness. So many things. And again, from my perspective in the work that I do, I would say many of us live in a performative paradigm. And I'll say specifically, the women that I see that are in heterosexual couples are actually much more focused on their partner than on their own pleasure. So maybe they're more people pleasers and they just say yes. And so perfunctory sex is great and they comply. And the opportunity for those women, which I think there are many of us out there and just people in general who might be people pleasers, 
the opportunity is to step more into their own sense of pleasure, which creates more agency, which actually might be able to enhance their sense of their desire because they'll know more about what it is that they like. And then will they become a better lover? Yes, because then they'll know what they like and communicate that to their partners and be able to express that effectively. What I find is that oftentimes the focus is on the other for the people that I see in my practice by and large. And that sometimes a rare bird comes in and is really focused on themselves and doesn't know how to share that with another. And that's a very different experience. And then the opportunity then is to begin to slow down again, to look at what the experience is for the other and how you might be able to increase the sensation for the other by really looking at their response and noticing what it is that's giving them pleasure. Because we have a rote way of doing many different things in our life, kind of the mindless autopilot. And that includes sex and sexuality. And to bring more awareness to that process, which may have been on autopilot, is going to change the way that you're doing it because your presence is increasing. And that's a wonderful opportunity for really anybody to become a better lover, that you're going to be more present in the moment is powerful. And what do you find that people, you probably won't like me using the term wrong, but what do you find that people (laughs) do wrong (laughs) that ends up with them months down the line going into the sex therapist's office? Like, what's the best preventative medicine? (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm so stuck on wrong. I can't even hear the question. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because it comes in waves. Like I'm thinking about the clients that I'm seeing now and it always comes in waves. Sometimes I'm seeing more individuals. Sometimes I'm seeing more couples. Sometimes I'm seeing more men who are struggling with erectile difficulties, either delayed ejaculation or premature ejaculation or inability to have an erection all sorts of, I would say, people with penis problems is really what's what's happening is what I'm seeing. And and I'd say, what are they doing wrong? Well, I, I think probably nothing, but the expectation that they should be different than what they all when the, than what they are. I think that's a really important piece is to begin to love where they're at at the mom, moment, something about self-acceptance and that this is what their experience is today it may not always be their experience and that they have the opportunity to change it and they can begin to look at technique and practices that can change their sexual experience because the flaccid penis can be just as sexy as a hard penis or an erect penis and that you can do a lot of things with a soft on as, as well as a hard on. And I think most people who, who are sexually work, you know, with penises are not thinking of that. They're really thinking in a very limited way about how they can be sexual with each other. And so I'd say what's wrong is the the lack of expansion, that there is more opportunity, that we have more pleasure, we have more erogenous zones on our body, we have more capacity for orgasmic bliss than we can even imagine. Yeah, recurring theme I'm hearing from you is the world of infinite possibilities that is available to us in the sexual realm as you mentioned, the expansiveness, the imagination. And let's say I'm out of ideas. Where, you know, what what can I do to be more inspired? Let's say, you know, I'm with my partner. Want to try something new? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, what do you want to do? It's kind of like, where do you want to eat tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do? I hear that, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my goodness. This is where there are just so, so many. I mean, there's podcasts like this. There are films and there are websites. There's social media. There's apps. There's literature. There's erotica. I mean, there, it, the just list goes on and on. So there's music. There's the opportunity to actually just listen to your partner and be in that uncomfortable experience of, I don't know in the moment. And can we just wait and see what emerges? I also invite people to, to create lists for themselves, what it is that they imagine that they would like to do with their current partner and just have that list available. So this way they can always add to it and then maybe even share that list with their partner. And that maybe it's on an exhaustive list, but it's a great place to begin uh, and to have conversations outside of wherever you normally have sex about your sexual experiences so that you're, you're decoupling it from the experience, but you're going to have a conversation about the sexual experience, maybe prior or maybe a day or two afterwards, that there's an opportunity to digest the experience and maybe integrate it and begin to speak about it in a way that's different than what happens in the heat of the moment or what doesn't happen in that moment where you're like, I'm thinking I want to experiment, but I don't know what to do. And so then you can follow up and it's never too late to say what it is that you desire. It's never too late to say what it is that you desire. I'm picturing somebody in their last few decades of life. Really? I can. <laughs> yeah. One of my oldest clients, he was 81 and he would come in because he's like, there's something more that I need to know. And I've been hearing about this female ejaculation and I don't know anything about it. What can you teach me about it? And I'm like, all right. Did you bust out the PowerPoint at that point? I did. I loved it. He was very attentive. Uh, <laughs> never too late. Never too late. So as we're winding down, I do feel like I want to ask you the relatively cliche question, you know, like the Cosmopolitan magazine, like 10 tips for the best sex ever of your life. I'm curious, I'll ask the sex therapist, do you have some hot tips for hot sex? Hot tips for hot sex. Yes. Hot tips. I uh, what am I feeling today? What am, I'm feeling like the hot tip for today is to step out of your comfort zone and do something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. If you're normally on top, try being on the bottom, <laughs> right? If you're normally doing it in the bedroom, do it in the kitchen. As I try something completely different, because what we do know, right? The science is that novelty sparks endorphins and that endorphins are needed for more pleasure. So try something different. Uh, I really want to encourage people to step out of the comfort zone because what I find is, again, coming back to the autopilot is we do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And that's not the way that it works. So we need to try something different to have a different experience. Wonderful. Try new things. Novelty is the spice of life. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Wonderful. So I do have to finish by asking you the final question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? That love is a very powerful force in this world and that it's important to love other people. And it's very important, particularly in this day and age, to love ourselves. And it is a beautiful, beautiful experience to love ourselves truly. And just allow that to overflow. Love ourselves fully and allow that to overflow. 
very connected to the talk earlier about female ejaculation. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just let it flow. Let it flow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tara Galliano, for coming onto the show, author of Rediscovering My Body. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? They can check me out on my website, rediscoveringmybody.com, and they can find my book on Amazon. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to sackbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Tara. Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zackbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 